But hang on, who, <laughs> who <laughs> thinks of this? Who's like, okay, let's, this is who, let's this put is together who. a machine that will measure <laughs> how much pressure a bird's beak. Okay. All right, so, so <laughs> exactly. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is confused by the latest health study, as I am by our new recording schedule. So we are now to our once a month schedule. And I have to admit, I'm thrown. Jess, does it does it feel weird to you? It I, I don't see you, Matt, as often as I would like. Yes. And no, no, it I, I it is a little different, definitely. It it has me confused and it has me thinking that I'm missing recordings. Mm-hmm. That I'm not actually missing. But anyway, so I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am joined once again by my friend and co-host, Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess. Thank you, Matt. Nice to be here. And we have a fantastic guest host this week, Dr. Marcia Pescador-Jimenez from the Department of Epidemiology here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Marcia. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. We're very glad to have you. And to our listeners, as a reminder, if you can head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, that's BU's hub for lifelong learning, where you'll find all kinds of interesting public health learning programs and tools. And also, if you could head on over to your favorite podcast apps function where you can leave us a rating or a a review, we would greatly appreciate it. It helps us to know that we're doing a good job and it helps the other people to find us. Well, I assume it helps us to know we're doing a good job. I mean, it could also tell us that we're doing a terrible job, but I would blame that on Nick. So it really doesn't matter anyway. So now, On to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study on the effects of childhood risk factors for cardiovascular disease and then adult cardiovascular disease events. So I don't know, you all can tell me if I'm wrong, but I would put this in the category of life course epidemiology, only in the sense that it's over a long extended period of time. I know that's not actually the definition of life course epidemiology, but I'm going to say it is for the moment. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we will talk about the benefits of vaccination for COVID after you've had COVID infection, something relevant to many of us in this room. I've had COVID recently. Many of us have. And then in our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud or just are super interesting to us. So let's get into our first segment. So we're looking at an article, as I said, that that is looking at childhood cardiovascular risk disease factors and then adult cardiovascular disease events, which, which as soon as I read it, seems to me a daunting task trying to follow people for that extended period of time, even if you don't have to actually follow them on a regular basis. But it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was entitled Childhood Cardiovascular Risk Factors and Adult Cardiovascular Events by first author David Jacobs of the Division of Epidemiology and Community Health at the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. So here are some headlines on this study. There weren't too many, but the ones that I pulled said, Childhood Risk Factors Linked to Cardiovascular Events in Midlife. That was Health Day. MedPage Today says, Study Provides, quote, Elusive Link Between Kids' Health and Adult Heart Events, which I thought was funny because is it really that elusive? We can get into that. And then Eureka Alert says five childhood risk factors predict heart attacks and strokes in adulthood. Another one which I thought was funny because it's five as if 
they found five out of a, a multitude, but they, five is essentially what they had, right? <laughs> right, this that's what they started with. But anyway, it's not like there are only five things that potentially could ever predict your risk of having a cardiovascular event. So Jess, can you walk us through this study? Sure. This was an interesting one. And just to add to Matt's background a little bit, obviously there's a good deal of literature that documents a positive association between adult risk factors for cardiovascular disease and actual cardiovascular disease events like heart attack and stroke. And that's why they are risk factors. And so the novelty here is looking at earlier ages and looking at whether, for example, children could be screened early in life for a suite of cardiovascular disease risk factors that then could identify children that were at higher risk of these events by midlife. And so these authors started kind of that midlife period in the 30s and 40s. And so the reason this question hasn't been looked at before, obviously, as Matt was implying, is that it would take decades and decades of having people understudy to be able to evaluate this sort of question. And so this, this study comes, comes to us from with a kind of adapted design over decades and decades of follow-up. So this study takes place within the International Childhood Cardiovascular Cohorts, the I3C Consortium. And have we have we read a paper about this? I, I, it seemed familiar to me, but it I, sounds familiar to me too. But I can't I, place it. I couldn't place it. Yeah, so, very but possible. So, so this is an interesting study. It includes seven childhood cohorts in Australia, Finland, and the United States, um, which collected data on cardiovascular disease risk factors in children and adolescents from the 1970s to the 1990s. The participants during that time were three to 19 years of age. And so what the authors or what the um, researchers associated with this I3C consortium, what they sought to do in 2015, from 2015 to 2019, they sought to find these participants again. So the original studies had ended and they then reopened up the files to try to recontact these participants who were now adults, young and, and middle-aged adults. And they did that for a four-year period. They looked for a medical and death record review to identify participants who had died in the intervening years. And they tried to make contact, to make direct contact with as many of these original study participants from these seven cohorts as possible. And so in the original parent studies, I say parent in the kind of epidemiological sense, not in the... Um, parental sense, um, because they were children at the time. So there were 42,000 participants originally in these seven cohorts. And so, as I said, these, these participants were contacted by phone when possible. They were reconsented and when they were found, and they were asked information about their cardiovascular risk factors, disease endpoints, and events. And then the investigators used uh, medical record data to confirm the events. And if they were not contacted, if they couldn't find the original participants, they looked for death records, as, they said to, as I said, to identify who had died. And if so, if the, if the death had been from a cardiovascular disease risk factor. And they were looking for both fatal CVD events as well as non-fatal events. And the conditions were fairly broad, including heart attack, stroke, ischemic heart failure, angina, peripheral artery disease, and others. So the risk factors that Matt was referring to that they were looking at. The big five. Um, the big five. So these were the ones that were collected from the 1970s to the 1990s, typically on multiple occasions over children and adolescents who were participating in these original studies. These risk factors were BMI, systolic blood pressure, total cholesterol level, triglyceride level, and youth smoking. 
And what they did with these risk factors, they were normalized disease scores within the whole consortium. So adjusted to view kind of the distinction from um, the standard deviation from the mean within the entire consortium, and then calculated as the mean value of each variable, and then stratified by age and sex. The resulting Z-scores, they calculated a Z-score per risk factor, and then also an aggregate Z-score that was averaged across the childhood and adolescent measurements to come to a single mean Z-score of childhood risk per person. And we can talk about the value of doing that. We can. We yes. should. <laughs> yes. We can, we can <laughs> and we should. So again, they looked at these Z-scores by risk factor and then in the aggregate. They also used the same risk factors that they gathered from the adults when they were recontacted, and they did the same sort of thing. They calculated both individual and combined risk Z-scores. For missing data, they had some complicated imputation approaches uh-huh. that we can talk about. But it's, um, it's interesting because when you talk about missing data here, it, it isn't just sort of your your covariate missing data. It was it was outcomes in yes. some case. And right. exposure, too. And, and exposure and, in some cases, yeah. And which a lot is, of it. And the percentage, I think, they recontacted successfully was in the 40, 46%, percent 46% of the original yeah. participants. Now, so that, yeah. I, it's worth noting, though, that it only pertains to the specific cardiovascular events. It doesn't pertain to the overall mortality outcome for which they could follow people up through mm-hmm. the... Through registry, you know, through death indexes. Yes. Yes. So it just related to that non-fatal endpoint. Non-fatal yes, endpoints. Yes, the, yeah. the non-fatal endpoints. Um, but they did make the assumption that we can talk about that the data were missing at random, even though there was quite a lot of it. Um, they used proportional hazards regression to look at risk of fatal and non-fatal endpoints um, with the Z-score predictors in various groupings, as I said, separately, and, and also adjusted for sex, race, cohort mean childhood age at the time of measurement, and parental education. So they used an adjusted proportional hazards regression approach, and they used splines to consider some nonlinear trends in these relationships over time. So they identified uh, among 35,000 approximately participants, 309 fatal cardiovascular events, and then the hazard ratios had a range in terms of the individual risk factors ranging from 1.3 to 1.6, with the highest risk associated for youth smoking. The combined Z-scores had a much higher impact. The hazard ratio there was 2.7. And so the hazard ratios were similar when calculated also for non-fatal endpoints, including a very similar range. They also, as I mentioned, combined the risk score, looking at the a, a compilation effect of childhood and adulthood, the Z-score, and that was approx- that was 2.9 or so, and these were all significant hazard ratios. Interestingly, one of the, the nice figures I liked in this paper was they kind of showed what appeared to be almost a U-shaped curve in the relationship between these, these, Z, these Z-scores. And Matt's shaking his head. I'm shaking my head because I wrote down, I find that figure so hard to interpret. I found it very hard to <laughs> yeah, interpret, yeah. but what I, what I appreciated about it is it showed, it, it showed the bifurcation and the risk curves by age. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so that was, the easy, that was kind of that made it easy to visualize even though I think it's a little bit, I'm not exactly sure, because it seems a little disingenuous to kind of map the hazard ratio going up anyway, Mm -hmm. in a below than zero way. Yeah. So, but it it did indicate that the risk began increasing dramatically in the early 40s. So children who had these positive risk factors identified in childhood and adolescence were then seeing increased risk starting in their early 40s for these cardiovascular disease endpoints, both for the fatal and the non-fatal endpoints. And then the risk kind of took off from there into older age. 
And so their conclusions, these authors' conclusions, was that these childhood cardiovascular disease risk factors, and especially if you aggregate them, the childhood and the adult risk factors, are associated with cardiovascular disease events by midlife. So a lot, a lot going on here. A lot going on. This was a really complicated study. I appreciated it, but it had, um, it was one where you had to read the paper a few times. I did too, and I, I want to say up front that I, I, I like this study, and I, I want to emphasize that because I have some, some, some criticisms, but I, I do want to emphasize that this is hard to do, and so I'll, I, I'll just put that out there. So, Marcia, let's start with you. What, what was your what was your thoughts on this paper? Well, first, I appreciate that you both said that it was a complicated study because, yes, I was having yeah. so much trouble A lot going reading. on here. So much. Yeah. Um, I started reading the, the methods and the first paragraph. I was like, okay, now let me read it once <laughs> again. And then to the second. And, yeah, I had to read everything multiple times. So thank you for saying that. Now I feel better. Good. There were a lot of things that they tested. Uh, I guess overall, I also liked the paper. I found the conclusions were made sense. But I thought that a lot of the things that they tested, they didn't necessarily give a reason for them. Like they had some interaction terms, but they never said why. Yep. They also had these three models adjusting for childhood and adulthood and then childhood and the difference between adulthood minus childhood. And they also never said what, like how do you right. interpret differently these models? So I... I, ha- I don't know how you feel about this, but I am always a little bit annoyed when I have to go into this t- supplement table number 18 yes. <laughs> to find out. Did you see the supplement? Had I, like 60 yeah. pages, like I, one supplement. Yeah. And there was another one. And I, I commend them for doing it. But if I can't get the information I need from the, for, for the main study out of the main paper, then, you know, I feel like I, I'm missing something. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so I, I had to go to the, the supplement to, to understand a, a few things of, of what they did. The other thing that I kind of confused me was what we were, we briefly just mentioned how they averaged the childhood scores. I thought that was a great strength of their data and just Average them seemed like a, a loss to me. Also, they had three to nineteen years. That seems like a wide range, yeah. right? And I don't think they mm-hmm. mentioned anything about that wide range. So, yeah, I guess I'll I'll stop there for yeah, now. Yeah, I, I presume I think that the three to nineteen years range, meaning the period during which they were measuring childhood events, I, I presume that's a it's what they had available to them. But I agree with you; it, it sort of begs the question about the interpretation and what do you do with this information, particularly given that there was a lot of missing information. So I spent a lot of time thinking about this paper. You know, the first question I always ask myself whenever I read one of these is, okay, what do I, what's my prior on this? What do I think is going to happen? And my prior was, well, obviously, if you've got childhood risk factors for cardiovascular events, then you're going to be at higher risk for cardiovascular events as an adult. So didn't define my expectations. So there, that's, I suppose, good in some sense. But then my second question is, okay, if, if I have a a prior that's that strong, why is this a New England Journal of Medicine paper? And presumably the answer is because it's not a question of do these things uh, affect your risk at older ages? It's how much. And, you know, not just how much, but if we're going to figure out how much, we need pretty good data sets to be able to do that because following people for a long period of times is incredibly difficult. So then my question was, okay, so why don't, why are, I mean, there are countries with registries where presumably most of this information, except maybe the smoking data, mm-hmm. would be available, I would think. 
on the entire population, you know, Sweden, Denmark, you know. So have these studies already been done on these Mm -hmm. cohorts? Because, you know, presumably if you've got all the data on, you know, childhood exposures and you've got all the follow-up data from people going to the, you know, having their medical care recorded, presumably you could do something like this. And it, it, it just kind of surprised me. So that's sort of my my intro. My my main critique of the paper, and as I say, I, I like the paper. I, I do think this is hard to do, and I appreciate all the effort they put into this. But my main critique would be, number one, are we just looking at the effects of – or, or, or the fact that childhood risk factors correlate with adult risk factors? And obviously, mm-hmm. they, they were aware of that, and they did some things to try and account for that. But I'm not convinced it, it, it totally works, in part because – you get a fair amount of a reasonable amount of measurement error in here, but also just because the the analytics were not, I think, designed specifically to answer the the question of whether you know it's it's the adult risk factors are simply mediators of the childhood risk factors or you know what's going on. So I, you know it just wasn't clear to me what exactly or, or how to exactly interpret these results. No, I I agree. I think when I started reading this, I said, ooh, they're going to be interested in a screening approach and an intervention approach with the idea that if, for example, say you have a child who throughout adolescence has a high number of these risk factors, if they modify their lifestyle or they reduce these risks in adulthood, does that then have an effect on later in life cardiovascular disease risk? And I couldn't really wrap my head around their integration of the childhood and adult Z-score approach. They, they tried to get at that a little bit, where they looked at the difference. They looked at the difference between those two measurements and modeled it. But it didn't, in my mind, either it didn't demonstrate exactly the effect that I was looking for, or it just wasn't clear to me what they were really trying to get at. Because that to me seems to be, is it inter, is there an intervention here that could be successful or no? Or are we just seeing that children who have a high BMI in childhood continue to have a high BMI in adulthood, and then that leads to cardiovascular disease? I, I could not agree more. So what is the question that you think this study is is answering? I mean, does it, I, I haven't gone back in a while to the, the objective statement at the end of this, but like, I, you know, the... There are so many interesting questions that you could ask from data like this. So they say we use these data to examine the development of cardiovascular disease over the life course. Oh, it does actually say life course. Okay, <laughs> the, that's where I obviously got that table, from. In the supplement table number 15 or something, they also mentioned life course. Okay, there we go. <laughs> life course. And test our hypothesis that the traditional cardiovascular risk factors in childhood are associated with the subsequent development of adult cardiovascular events. Okay, so that, I mean, to me, that's a, are two things associated. Whereas you could ask some really interesting and very useful questions mm-hmm. like, if you have a risk factor in childhood, is there a benefit to reducing that risk factor in adulthood? Yeah. Does that change your risk profile? Because we, we already know that the childhood risk factors do predict your adult risk factors. Does, you know, does, are there specific ones of these that would matter more in terms of reducing your risk? You know, like all of these really intervention-based questions that you could ask that don't seem to be in here. Yeah, I think you're right. I completely agree. And I think that's where they were trying to get at when they tried different models or they personalized it differently, right? In one model, they had childhood 
and adjusted for the adulthood average C-score. And they said that's just for mutual adjustment. In the, another model, they had childhood C-score and the difference between adulthood and the childhood C-score. And they said, this is a life course approach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's where they were framing adult risk factor as a function of child mm -hmm. risk factor. So th to me, that that's, I don't know, I, I, I thought about mediation. I don't know. I, I, I was very confused by that. Yeah, and I... I think you're right. I mean, I do think they are, obviously, I mean, I do think they're, these are smart people. They're interested yes. in the same kinds of questions that we're, we're asking about. I wonder, I, I very much wonder whether this is, this has to do with, with the ways that we train people to, to do analysis, you know, to, to, to do studies really to answer questions because we, we, we don't necessarily train people in the, you know, what's the intervention that I want to know the effect of. How would I do that? How would I mimic that in an observational study? I mean, we're starting to. We're starting to get better at that. But I, it's not the the mainstay of what we do. And I, Marcia, I agree with you that that we these different models that they're doing are trying to get at those kinds of questions, but they're not specific. It's not specifically saying, okay, let's take the population who has you know this risk factor in childhood, and let's let's look at what happens when we manipulate that. Manipulate, I mean, in the sense of you know the. It's probably going to be a, a person reducing their BMI or, you know, reducing their cholesterol, things like that. What are the specific impacts that we can see and how does that interact with any changes in any of these other factors? Now, obviously, you need a lot of, a lot of data to be able to do that, and that's one of the rate-limiting factors here. But it does seem to me those kinds of questions are the ones that actually are useful to us as human beings. I don't know. Yeah, and I think to your earlier point about why didn't they use data from countries where they did have continuous life course data, yep. one of the values here was I think of these seven cohorts, I think three or four of them were based in the U.S., where we have the highest burden of children with these risk factors mm -hmm. and yep. where arguably the cardiovascular disease endpoints might be most relevant, most prevalent. And so kind of the, the, the prevalence of the risk factors and the prevalence of the endpoints, even though we don't have that kind of life course data set, although maybe, maybe we do in combining other sorts of data sets. But I think part of the value here was in the U.S. context, was being able to extrapolate what it means in specifically in the United States. And also, I think one of the reasons this was in the New England Journal was that they did successfully recontact tens of thousands of participants who had last been contacted in the seven, you know, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And that must have taken a tremendous amount of person power to do that and to validate all those medical records. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was kind of an interesting, if laborious, study design, but to try to get around, especially in the context of the U.S., kind of our lack of a life course data set. And and mm -hmm. do you think that, I mean, the fact that they were only able to get 46% for those non-fatal events changes the way you interpret the, the results? I mean, do you worry about selection bias here? I was kind of hoping they would also give the results based on the observed data, not only the imputed data. And I didn't mm -hmm. see, did I miss that or they didn't? I did not see that. So, it's yeah. possible that it was yeah. there, but it I'm could have been remembering one, it. It could have been in one of the supplements. Yeah, yeah right, right, right. Which one? Yeah. yeah. Supplement 26. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, it, it, it does make me a little concerned and I, you know, I don't have enough information to be able to say exactly what it is that concerns me. Part of it is, you know, they, they do say that they, you know, they did the, well, uh, to answer your question, so they do say that the imputation gave the same results 
And they said as, that was why they could go with this imputation. Yeah. Right, right, right. Oh, so, Which, yeah. I, you know, like to me, is, is, okay. is not right. very convincing. That you was, know. yeah. So you, as you pointed out, the, the, the assumption here was the data is missing at random, which to the to the layperson sounds like you're assuming that there is is nothing predicts the the missingness, but missing at random actually means missing at random within all of the things that we can account for. So anything we did collect data on, missing completely at random would be completely random. But even then, I mean, it's not like they had a ton of things to be able to predict the missingness such that you could say we know for sure that the fact that the results didn't change with the imputation means there's no selection bias. I'm I'm just never convinced by that that argument because it's dependent on what you have. Yeah. I also think they were somewhat limited with the data they had from the original data set because their final models, just looking at what they were adjusting for. So the, the models were not tremendously complicated. They adjusted for sex, yeah. race, the cohort, childhood age at time of measurement, and parental education. And there's lots of other you know, variables and factors that go into cardiovascular disease. Right. And so it seemed to me that that they just had some limit, that there was just limited data that they had that might have been relevant that they could draw from these existing cohorts. And so that might open up, you know, more than possible the idea that there's some residual confounding in there. Absolutely. And, and you know, the study isn't going to be all things to, to yeah. all people. They did they did what they could. Uh, the, the last thing I'm, I'm interested in getting your view on is the Z-score approach. Yeah. I don't, I, I, this is not my field, so I can't say, you know, for all I know, this is perfectly a, a perfectly standard and reasonable way to do things, and that there are reasons to turn everything into a, 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 a z-score. But to go back to the conversation we were having before about interventions, I mean, z-scores are not an intervention, right? And so, and and by the way, it's worth pointing out they they their main focus was on the z-scores, but then they did have analyses where they used the actual indicators themselves. So, it, it, but it wasn't the main focus. And so, you know, what what do I take away from that then then that if, you know, if I drop one standard deviation mm-hmm. in my BMI compared to the mean, you know, that that somehow that's going to reduce my risk for an outcome. I don't I just don't know what to do with it. I I had the same thought because I I honestly got a point where it got too complicated and I stopped following like after the imputation, after the splines, they also did a natural logarithm, the C-scores, and then the difference. And I was like, I, I'm lost. Yeah. I don't know how to interpret yeah. this. Like, no, this was, a, this was a technical paper. I For me, it was the combination of the Z-scores and the hazard ratios, oh, right. where you yeah. had the combination of two complicated things to think about, and the hazard ratio was a reflection of the Z-scores. And so it was a combina- it was a ratio comparing hazard in a baseline, you know, kind of between one standard deviation over the baseline z-score, which was kind of hard to wrap my head around. So it was not intuitive, let's just say. It was not intuitive, and there was kind of a lot of statistical complication. I um, completely agree. All right, any, any last thoughts anyone wants to bring up before we I, – I have one last thing I want to say. I would say one thing. I, I actually, I, I thought with this number of studies, with the number of cohorts, the number of participants across multiple countries, it was pretty impressive to get mm-hmm. a 46% follow-up, right? I mean, even in smaller studies that I lead, you know, we're getting like 70% over like a four-year period. And so to get people 30, 40 years later, I don't know. I thought that was still Pretty good. Okay, so but here's the here, here's the problem with that. Does the fact that I agree with you that it's impressive, but does the fact that it's impressive 
mean that no. it gives us good quality information. <laughs> it does right. not. That's, no, that's it does not. It does that's not. But yeah, no, but it I certainly agree. does it's, not. But it yeah, it is impressive. I think the the other thing that I liked about it is that they had these five factors, mm-hmm. but they also showed that some of them had higher risk, right? Like yeah. some. Yeah. So I I kind of appreciated that, and it was not just being you know in the highest BMI category. You could also be in the second highest or even I think the third or something and you, you would still have a higher. So there were a, f- a few facts that I, I appreciated. Agreed. I totally agree. All right. Before we move on, I need to have a private little moment with the New England Journal of Medicine. Oh. <laughs> Dear New England Journal of Medicine, if you would like... Should we leave the room? <laughs> if you would like Man Fox as a reader, please stop printing tables sideways. <laughs> I cannot read type table sideways. I can't turn, for whatever reason, my Adobe Acrobat won't turn the table. And then I have to turn my laptop sideways or turn my head sideways. I can't do it. Please stop doing that. Thank you. Okay. I'm sure they're listening, so I'm sure that's going to stop. All right. Let's let's move on to our second segment where we're going to talk about a article that was also in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was a it was a, a thought piece on the added benefit of COVID nineteen vaccinations after previous infections by Nicola Klein. And if I remember correctly, it was a it was a commentary on some articles that had come out in the journal about you know whether there is benefit to getting vaccinated after you have been infected. And this comes up as an important point because there is, if you read Twitter or (laughs) any other social media site, you will absolutely see people who say, if you've been infected, you don't need to get vaccinated. Now, need is a tough word there, so let's leave that aside, but whether or not there is benefit. And you'll see a lot of people who are saying, in fact, uh, natural infection is, is better than the vaccine and getting the vaccine will, you know, cause problems completely unfounded, but you will see that online. So here we have actual data showing that there is, in fact, benefit to getting COVID-19 vaccination if you've had a previous infection. So you will be better off. You will be protected against both infection and severe infection. So infection in this case being reinfection and severe illness and, and that the protection was fairly durable. So I think they said in unvaccinated persons, the estimated protection against reinfection was 86% within a year after the initial infection and 69% beyond a year. In vaccinated persons, vaccination more than one year after the primary infection increased protection to approximately 94%, a level at which it remained for more than six months. Mm -hmm. So clearly there is benefit. The article notes that some observers may assert that 69% protection for more than one year after previous infection without vaccination is good enough. I would argue it's not good enough, but I I do acknowledge that there is some personal preference in whether or not people want to make those decisions. But it seems to me pretty clear that there is, in fact, added benefit that, that getting infected and then not getting vaccinated leaves you at increased risk for both infection and severe infection. So, Marcia, does this put an end forever to the debate. And now everyone who has already previously had infection is going to go out and get themselves vaccinated tomorrow. Yes. I was entirely convinced. Totally. <laughs> totally. Right. I was like, okay, this, this makes the point that I, I have been waiting to hear for, you know, almost two years. So yeah, we're, we're done here. We're done, right? <laughs> 
So, so obviously, I mean, I you, you're you're being sarcastic, rightfully so, because it was a it was a silly question to ask. But I guess the question is, do you think this will be convincing to anybody who has previously been infected but has actively chosen not to get the vaccine? In other words, is, is do do we need more data? Or are we in a place where we could have all the data in the world and we're not going to move the needle? And obviously, there are people we're never going to move the needle with. But is this going to have some meaningful benefit to knowing this? Or, you know, can we do all the studies in the world and we're just not going to not going to change anything? I, yeah, I think I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if it will actually change things. But I actually I, I went back to one of the papers that I talk about, the Hammerman et mm-hmm. al. paper. Yeah. And they, it was based in Denmark, and apparently they had free of charge PCR testing for everyone in that country, which is amazing. Yeah. And their paper was based on 4 million individuals and 10.6 million tests. Again, the kind of things you could do when you have registries and universal healthcare. Exactly. That was impressive. So I, I, I re- remember about this because you said that we have enough data. That sounds like enough data to me, right? It does. It does. It sounds like plenty of data. But yeah, I don't know if that will convince. Yeah. I I don't know what to say about that. Jess, what do you think? I had a question before I get to that. I had a question about this study because I did not go back to read the original studies that that this article was reflecting on. But my understanding of the dates was that this was reflecting Delta, not Omicron. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that this was reflecting kind of protection against Delta from both, yeah, the vaccination and then also the infection. And I think the big question for a skeptic is, well, it doesn't seem to work so well with Omicron. Mm. And all these retrospective studies, not retrospective in the epidemiologic sense, but kind of studies that look in the past at yep. effectiveness yep. are useless now. Mm. I think that's 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 the critique that kind of comes from the skeptics is how does this relate to what we deal with now. And I I agree with Marcia that I think I think there's a lot of data. I think lack of data is not the issue here mm-hmm. in terms of what's affecting people's views. Yeah. And I think you make a you, you make a really good point about the about about Delta and and Omicron does seem to be different. And it does seem to be the next talking point in why people who don't want to get vaccinated want to convince other people not to get vaccinated because the vaccines are still the original strain vaccine and and therefore why should we think it's going to work against omicron although certainly the the anecdotal data would be that it it works quite well against against omicron uh, anecdotal isn't the right word but the the uh, sort of population level data would suggest that it's working quite well against omicron but leave that aside so i i i take your point on the other hand i mean delta was a more severe strain. And so showing that it was that you can get reinfected with, you know, after having had Delta, which previously there were, there were lots of people on the, on the, I want to say COVID skeptic, but that's not right. The word, but the people who, who lean towards not vaccinating had been saying, you can't get, you know, you can't get reinfected. Or if you can, it's like, you know, one in a million, it's clearly not true. And so if a more severe strain we're showing protection with the vaccine, you know, you would think that it would probably have benefit for less severe strains. I thought, yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I think um, what was nice about these studies, as also someone who fairly recently recovered from COVID, is that it was looking at this one-year 
time horizon, which seems like a long time right mm -hmm. now. I know there's a lot of conversation about COVID that you can, you know, you're going to get it again three months later, which seems you're like, I dealt with this. My whole, my whole family was home for a month and now we're going to get it again three months later. And to at least show even, you know, is it 69 percent effectiveness in an unvaccinated situation up to 86, you know, 90 plus in a vaccinated population within a year, that seems pretty decent. I, I agree. It seems, it seems quite good. I, it does seem to be worth pointing out because, you know, I certainly think there, there were lots of people saying as the first Omicron wave came, well, this is what we've been waiting for. Let's, you know, go and, and, <laughs> you know, get infected with a mild strain and we'll all be COVID fine. Parties. But of course we know that the mortality rates were lower, but out of a out of a very large number of infections, so the the number of deaths was was quite high. So it, it seems to me it's really important to remember that the benefits of prior infection, the benefits of of natural infection, only accrue to those people who survive mm -hmm. the infection, and you know even those who survive the infection can often not often but some percentage of them will develop long covid and mm -hmm. you know other sequela that that you know are pretty miserable so just want to emphasize that point that nobody should be thinking of this as the uh, we should be going and having covid parties especially mm -hmm. now you know there's all this data coming out on long covid that it's affecting right. 20% of people who get covid depending on how you define it and i thought that was pretty remarkable too but that plays into this too. You know, they'll, they'll be kind of interesting in terms of, you know, studies that start to look at the effectiveness of vaccines and preventing long COVID, even in people who get a reinfection. Yeah, I have to yeah. say that, that 20% number, I want to know more. Yeah, I'm that was to, in the media. It was like, I, yeah, I heard, I heard yeah. it. I'm just, I want to know more because 20% would imply I should know a, a bunch of people who yeah. have long COVID. And I, I don't really know anybody who has long COVID. I know a lot of people have been infected, but I'm not running into many I don't think I know anybody who has long COVID. I so, do. I do. Yeah. 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 Okay. So maybe it's just the population that I'm running into, but 20% seems Seems high. high. Yeah. Seems, seems high. high. I didn't hear that 20%. It was just in the media like last week. Yeah. I don't know where it came from or what the estimates come from, but they were saying it was probably some new study. The other thing on, on this topic that I think continues to make its way into the anti-vax discussion was that data that came out of New York City a number of months ago that showed that the vaccine effectiveness in children in response to Omicron dropped mm. remarkably within a three-week period. Mm. And so I think that's that's kind of, you know, and I think in people, you know, people seeing this study or this series of studies and then looking to square it with that data that was published, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that's where I think there's confusion where right. you say, okay, well, why would it be so short-acting in children? Why did they just re, you know, what, why did they just, you know, support the boosters for young children or they're starting to really make strides towards having vaccines available for children under five? How does that square with that, you know, that research that was showing a three-week effectiveness? It's confusing. I think it's confusing. There's a lot of data and it's hard to know what to value and what to make sense of. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that I saw that. So that's, that's news to me. Well, let me ask this question: Does does a does a, a piece like this change or support in any way the role for vaccine mandates? Because, of course, I mean, part of the pushback against vaccine mandates partly it was about you know effectiveness and uh, against infection, but partly it was well, mm -hmm. you're not you're not making exceptions for people who have already had infection, and this would suggest there is benefit actually to those who 
have been previously infected. So does it does it does it do anything to the argument around mandates? Yeah, I guess one one thing that I appreciated of the, of the comment is that even even if it doesn't protect that much against other variants, but for people had, that had been infected, mm-hmm. they were protected up to sixty nine percent. So for some, that might be enough, yeah. right? But then with the vaccine, it went up to 98, right? 90-something, yeah. Right. The number 94, 90, 94. 94. Yeah. You're right, 94. Yep, 94. So for other variants that are more infectious, having a higher protective um, level would definitely, I, I, would, I would suggest, support the vaccine mandate. Yeah. I, I mean, it certainly would add to the evidence. I, I have to admit, personally, I'm not super supportive of, of mandates because I, I, I don't think that they are going to get enough people to actually get vaccinated and they cause so much, so much divisiveness and, and yes. frustration. I, I support them in limited capacity. There are certain places where I think it, it makes sense, but, and I was very supportive of them when we thought we had originally thought it would be a sterilizing vaccine. So you, you could, you know, effectively wipe out COVID now we know that you can't, and so I'm more torn on whether vaccine mandates make sense. So, I think so. It's 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 really interesting, though, like you're saying, to have a quantification of the potential effect, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And then to be able to look at, you say, well, the difference between 69% and 94%, is that something that is worth the complication of imposing a mandate or not? Like, it's great to have those numbers. You can actually have that conversation. And then you could stratify by age and say, mm-hmm. you know, for older people in settings where there are people over 65, here are the numbers. And maybe it's really worth it in certain situations to take on the additional complication of a mandate. Mm-hmm. And maybe in other situations less so. And so I thought, yeah, I think the value here of having those numbers is tremendous. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So let, with that, let's move on to our last segment, which is our Amazing and amusing, which needs no introduction. Jess, you wanna you wanna go first? Sure. I say as you're taking a drink of water. <laughs> no, that's fine. Readjusting my mask so I don't get all of you sick. So this was an article that initially I was drawn to because the topic seemed interesting to me, and then and then after reading it, the real story was in the comments. Oh. Okay. So 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 this was an article that was published in the New York Times about a research article that was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society. And the heading here is scientists found an animal that walks on three limbs. It's a parrot. Okay. And so, so, okay. So, so, so so hear this out. So what the, (laughs) you know, what the authors and this um, journalist was highlighting that kind of in the natural world, things tend to be bipedal. We have two arms, we have two legs. Most animals have legs and arms and features in pairs in an even number. Right. And, it is, I think, unheard of to have an odd number of legs or an odd number <laughs> of arms. And, and so the argument was, is that really true? Is it really the case that every creature has an even number of arms and legs and features? You know, we, we don't have three kidneys. We don't have, you know, five ears, you know, that sort of thing. And so what they did is they did an experiment with parrots. They bought a group of parrots at the pet store and they kind of put together some sort of experimental wall where they could evaluate the pressure that the parrots were putting on the wall to to climb up. Uh And so what they found is that the force exerted by the beak of the parrot was equivalent and in some cases exceeded the force exerted by the feet. And so they said the parrots are using their beak 
as a third foot. I, I <laughs> okay. can believe that when they're, okay. when they're climbing. Right. Yeah, I mean, they don't they don't walk with their beak, but they, yeah. Yeah, okay. and so this, right this, this, this got a write-up in the Times. It got a write-up in Nature, okay? And then you scroll to the but comments. But hang on, who, <laughs> right, who right. thinks of this? Who's like... <laughs> Okay, let's, this is who. Let's this put is together who. a machine that will measure <laughs> how much pressure a bird's beak. Okay. All right, so, so <laughs> exactly. So in the comments to this article, there's all these people who were like, this is the stupidest study ever. Anyone who's owned a parrot has seen this happening. Oh, of course. And yeah. so it was everyone, like all these people were writing in and be like, I've known this for decades. I if you if you own birds, you see that they do this. They use their beaks like a foot to, to move, to climb. And it was like person after person who was like, duh, this is like, <laughs> tell us something that we don't already know. And it brought up a really interesting kind of story in my mind. If we don't know it, does that make it science? If we, if we quantify it on a fancy wall that measures the force exerted by the beak and the parrot's feet, like that's science. But, it, it, you know, if it's something that is largely known by people who own birds, what is the contribution? There, so that it, it it was striking to me that all That's these all these so bird owners funny. were like, this is this is like so obvious and so silly that someone would actually do this, and the rest of us were like, wow, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I don't, I've so, never owned a bird or a parrot or anything, and I'm like, this is amazing. Right, you're like three <laughs> feet, but, right? But you did right. as soon as as soon as Jeff said it, we we both right. Went, that's oh, why, yeah, yeah, yeah birds, well, that's true. They do that. Yeah, right. I've seen yeah. birds do yeah. that. But if you study a phenomenon as a scientist. That is is kind of well known in a general landscape by kind of a lay audience just from observation. Kind of what is the line there between documenting something scientifically or mathematically that is observationally obvious? Yeah, it's a good I don't know. Question. It was an interesting question to me. But this obviously was like a high hitting paper in the field. That's so cool. Yeah. Anyway. So while we're on the subject of parrots, I heard the story on NPR yesterday, but I, I probably everybody knew this except me about the Alex the parrot was like the most famous parrot and he he died I, I don't know when he died but he died of this wasn't this isn't new but oh. he had the, like the he had a vocabulary of like 100 something plus words and he could distinguish concepts so they would show him like you know different thing you know different and he would say what's different here and he would mm. look at it and he would say color oh my and goodness they would, say, they would say it's shape or mm-hmm. he could he could distinguish like he not only could talk he could communicate conceptually which Hmm. Parrots, man, they're smart. I know. It's I interesting because uh, you think of parrots that they're just like repeating words no, without the cognition. No, yeah. they're yeah. smart. That's that's wow. crazy. I would, I would, yeah. I, I, there's something I can't. We should be about careful parrot. about parrots. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> be very careful yeah. around parrots. Yeah. 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 Marcia, what do you got for us? I have a spooky story. All right. Yes. So I have to start by saying that I, I get scared very easily. Yeah. So you might not find this very spooky, but I found it terrifying. All right. So anyways, this was this happened before the pandemic. We went to a town in Mexico. It's called Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a smaller town like 20 minutes away from it. it it's called San Martin de Tilcajete. This town is renowned by its wood carving skills and for making alebrijes, which are like wooden carvings that depict a pantheon of creatures. So they might have mm-hmm. like an elephant. Yep. How do you call this? The, the trunk. The, the trunk. trunk. Thank you. <laughs> elephant trunk. <laughs> I, the visual. I got the visual. Uh, yeah, sure. thank you. <laughs> and the uh, butterfly um, wings, or you know, like it's it, it's a mix of, of animals, and they are painted in really in, in multiple colors. Mm-hmm. 
So we were there and I had my two, two little girls. One of them was five months old and the other one was three years old. And we were wa- walking around the town and then we started hearing some yelling and a bunch of men coming down the street. So I started getting scared, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And they were holding cowbells. Do you know what cowbell? Yeah, how yeah. they sound? Can you? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And they were also yelling like these wolves and they were like, Ooh, oh my goodness. I'm like, already have goosebumps. I'm serious. Okay. okay. And as they came closer, I realized that they were com- they were completely covered in black paint and wearing masks that had horns like yeah. devil. Yeah. I freaked out. I just grabbed my two little girls and went to the store and wouldn't, and they were like coming after us, you know, like we were obviously tourists in that town. So they were like really honing in on us. Uh-huh. I, I entered the store and I did not want to leave the store. They luckily didn't enter the store. And then, so we, they left and then we went outside and then we were in the center of the town and they came back. Oh. And so the idea is that they come to you and they paint, right? Because they're covered in, in black paint. Mm-hmm. But then I just panicked. I just couldn't move. And they came and they painted us all black. And then I realized that it was actually like a prank. So it was a, it turns out that it's a carnival. Okay. That it's a very traditional thing that they do. It starts on the day before Lent. And what they what they are doing is they're they are trying to keep their tradition. So this was before the Spanish came with mm-hmm. Catholicism and Christianism and, and everything. This is a very predominantly Zapotec village. Mm-hmm. And the carnival actually coincides with indigenous festivals celebrating the last days of the Mesoamerican calendar okay. when faces were covered to repel or confuse mm-hmm. evil. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And that's what the carnival is about. They they try to scare people and paint them black, and you're supposed to run away from oh. them. But then I got super scared, and I panicked, and I didn't run, and I got painted. But evil. it sounds like it was very effective in scaring you. It was so bad. I'm. It was really really. Bad. It, it was. It's funny that it happens one day a year, and we happen to be there on that day without really noticing. Exactly. So Ooh. the lesson is, I guess, if you go somewhere, make sure you know about the traditions in case there are some devils painted that are coming after you. <laughs> and, and so this is this is something you had never heard of before. I've never heard and of it before. Yeah, I would imagine a bunch of people running towards me in covered in, in paint and devil's horns would scare. So they, they are very, yeah, for yeah. sure. Cause they, they use like the car oil, you know, uh-huh. so yeah. they are like really painted and they have these, that's the other thing that is tradition. The, the masks are um, wood carved. So they are big, you know, and I assume mm. they're heavy. So you, you cannot really see the human shape. It's very scary. That's yeah. my you can see how it would specifically scare tourists because people who knew, who lived there, who knew what it would be like, oh, guys, <laughs> what day oh, it's today. Yeah, <laughs> right? They would be less scared. But tourists or people who didn't know, yeah, I would have been terrified too. Thank I would have definitely, yeah. I would have, I would, I would have done the same thing you did. Thank you. Yep. It turns, I think it, it actually has a happy ending. So it ends in a fake wedding where everybody dances wow. and drinks and like the whole town is invited. So, yeah, I was not invited but for that. But, but. <laughs> but see, they should have. After that, you were <laughs> part Seriously. of the story. Right? Exactly. Yeah. I kind of feel like they so, owed it to you at that right. point. Yeah. Thank you. All right. 
All right. Well, I have a short one, but and this goes back in 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 the archive. So this goes back to 2014. So you may have may have heard this story at the time, but it's it fits in with the pattern of of things that I find amusing. So it got posted on Twitter originally, but then it got picked up by the news. And this was a I I, I believe this was high school, but it, I suppose it could be college level. But I I think this was high school. Yeah, I think it was it was his high school physics assignment. So this student, and I have the name of the student, but I lost it, Syram Gudisova. This is, again, this is January of 2014, posted the assignment that he had written for his physics class. And I'm going I'm to read you the first couple of lines here, but it goes on for quite a while. So this says, never has a man influenced physics so profoundly as Niels Bohr in the early 1900s. Going back to this time period, little was known about atomic structure, Bohr set out to end the obscurity of physics. However, things didn't come easy for Bohr. He had to give up most of his life for physics and research of many hypotheses, so on and so forth. Whole long paper about Niels Bohr. Do you know what, do you, Do either of you know what Rick Rowling is? Yes, yeah, sadly. Do you know what Rick Rowling is? Oh God, my, I have two you, preteens in the house. It's where you pull a prank. And then there's like the joke is that it links to the song "Never Gonna Give You Up," yeah. "Never Gonna Let You Down." Yeah, the idea is you, 80s, you, right? you make some point on the internet and you include a link to back up your point, and that link takes you to the video of Rick Astley's oh 1980s song "Never Gonna Give You Up." Why do people do this? I really have no idea. But so your, have, your daughters are obviously not like eleven yet. <laughs> I have certainly fallen for this many times. It's referred to as Rickrolling. The paper is written such that the first word of every line, if you read it down, gives you the lyrics to Rick Astley's. Oh, that's amazing. Never to give you up. Which I, you know. That's art. Takes some effort. Yeah. Takes some creativity. It takes commitment. And that's what I like. I like people who commit to a bit. So wait, so the prank is that you hear the song? That's a that's a prank. The prank yeah. is yeah, it kind of there's some sort of click. It's like a click here. It's almost like a clickbait sort of thing. Yeah. Like they're trying to get you to click on something and then it always goes to the video of this guy song from the eighties. Got it. And that's exactly the lyrics that and appear. Those are the lyrics. Right. Yep. That's, that's pretty different. I wouldn't be able to do that even if I wanted to. It would take me a long time. Because yeah. you have to you have to really plan out and figure out how you're going to say something that in your paper that actually is going to get you a decent grade. Well, I assume you care about the grade, but yeah, <laughs> that takes, it takes effort and planning and, mm-hmm. and forethought. So well done. All right. So that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at pop healthy X. You can tweet me at, at prof Matt Fox or Donna at D Theo one or Chris at ID.gill. Jess still does not have, uh, I, do, uh, <laughs> I think I figured out the password. <laughs> It'll, I'll, I'll, I'll come to it at some I, point. But I, it's just I, at Jessica Liebler. I, yeah. I, oh, it is because I googled and yeah. did, cannot come up with yours. But okay, um, sorry, Matt. <laughs> and Marcy, you got to you got to tell me how I would say yours because I don't even know how to. I don't know how to say this. Oh, it, it, the the Twitter handle? your Twitter handle Marcia Ixchel. So that's a, a Mayan name, actually. My, okay. Yeah, Ixchel. So, so how would how you're gonna have to spell it? I think. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> Just assuming here, uh, Marcia M A R um, C A A dot I X C H E L. There you go. You can also find us, of course, at the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and soundproofing. You wouldn't believe how many ambulances went by during this episode that Nick 
managed to drown out. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>